Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. When you think about the idea of passing on a legacy to someone, uh, what comes to your mind? Uh, Like if you live your life really well, what do you hope to be remembered for? Like what are the things you'd like to have accomplished that really matter to you? What are the things you want to be remembered for that have lasting value attached to them? And then what are the things that just kind of fade away that don't really mean all that much? You see, what gets real clear real fast is that whenever people start talking about legacy, they don't talk about job titles. They don't talk about promotions. They don't talk about financial achievements. They don't talk about material possessions. They don't talk about building designs or any of the things that by default can end up preoccupying us from one day to the next. Mostly, they just talk about how one human being can breathe life into another one and how through some process that none of us fully understands, it's possible for us to make each other stronger and braver and more joyful and more like the one we follow. It gets real clear real fast that the one business that matters is the people building business. That's about all that matters. And I want us to look at the classic text from scripture in this regard. It's Ephesians 4, starting with verse 11. Uh, This is one of the great chapters in all of the New Testament. Uh, It's a great picture Paul paints of what it means to work in the body of Christ. He writes this starting with verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, Paul's particular concern, almost obsession, is summed up in one of his favorite words, Uh, He uses it way more than anyone else in the New Testament. Uh, It doesn't get used much in our day, uh, but he uses it in verse 12 and again in verse 16 and a very similar concept in verse 15. Uh, The old word for it is to edify, uh, that the body of Christ might be edified, that the, the whole body joined and held together grows and edifies itself in love. Uh, Nowadays, it's usually translated build up or strengthen. Uh, Paul's word is oikotome. Uh, It's from the field of architecture. It was used to describe the construction of a building. It's a term that implies an enormous constructive expenditure of great effort and creativity and energy and labor and zeal. 
And we're watching this around our new church building these days in spades. Uh, it's in the process of oikotome. Uh, it was an old office building that was completely torn down to the exterior walls, but now it's being built up. It's uh, being edified. It's it turning into a wonderful edifice. And every day there are master craftsmen at work and they use every tool at their disposal, giant machines and skip loaders to tear down walls and scissor lifts and forklifts and enormous jackhammers and power welders and drills. And it's fascinating to watch them build. Paul takes this word with this rich background and he says that's God's ultimate desire that 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 would happen to his people. And not just that, but that's God's ultimate desire for you, that you would do this for his people, that the body itself would be built up. When you edify someone, you make them stronger. Like you feed their spirit. You, you appeal to what is noblest and best in them. Uh, you do something that's not done in our culture, in the entertainment world or in the financial world all that often. You work for the redemption of their character. You pay them the honor of consistently challenging them to pursue their full Christ-given potential. When you edify someone, this great old word, you partner with God at the restoration of his image, the divine image in a human being for whom Christ died. And it's God's plan for his church, for you and me, to be in the people building business, to be a kind of people building factory. And when you think about whatever kind of latest thing you're interested in, when you get to whatever the end of the road looks like for you, and you look back on what mattered and what didn't matter, I'll tell you what will have mattered. It's the people into whom you've built through the power of God. That's what matters. And so in the time that remains in this message, I wanna talk about the tools you'll need if you go into the people building business. Now, because every building business requires tools, I wanna to talk to you about the tools needed for people building. And just to be real clear, I'm talking to parents and teachers and people who lead small groups and people who supervise others at work and people who care about people in their neighborhood and like anyone really who wants to go into the people building business. What are the tools of the trade? What are the essential uh, instruments required for the edification of a high-quality, God-honoring human being? What does a master craftsman at people-building look like? All right, the first tool you'll need, and this might surprise you, is problems. Problems are tools, and a people-builder needs lots of problems. Uh, problems are to people-builders what hammers are to carpenters. Now that you know this, do you have more tools than you thought you did? Uh, are you with one of your tools right now? Uh, this is fundamental in the development of a human being. And it's a strange thing. You know, we don't recognize it too often. Very rarely does someone come to me and say, may I have some problems, please? But I'll tell you, one hour of problems will catalyze more growth in someone than a year of comfort. In fact, one of the main ways you can diagnose spiritual gifts in a person is this. When a person is functioning in their area of spiritual giftedness, they tend to be energized by problems. 
Put someone with the gift of giving in touch with an area of financial need and they'll stay up at night dreaming of ways to contribute. Put an evangelist in a room with a devout atheist. I mean, they'll go into apologetics overdrive. Put someone with a mercy gift next to someone in a hospital sickbed and this sense of comfort and empathy will just start to flow. Now, on the other hand, when you function outside of your areas of spiritual gifts, you tend to be frustrated by problems. I mean, put someone with a leadership gift next to a hospital sick bed, and that person will probably end up feeling sicker. You know, you put like a Taipei leader into hospital visitation and people will start to die. Uh, what this means is a key task for human development is the wise distribution of problems. A key task in the edification, in the development, in the growth of human beings is the wise distribution of problems. Now, this is an art. Uh, if you want to uh, help someone grow, if you want to help them to be edified, you shouldn't uh, try to protect them from problems. On the other hand, you don't wanna dump all the problems that you don't want onto them. This is an art. And I wanna give you a framework for doing this well. And this will take a little explaining to set it up. Uh, so just kind of bear with me for a moment. There's a man named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who spent several decades studying human development. Uh, he discovered that when people are in the sweet spot of their fruitfulness, where they experience maximum growth, they experience a dynamic that he calls flow. Uh, he wrote a number of books about this. He started studying this phenomenon with artists and athletes, but eventually found it was experienced and shared by all people. Uh, we all know this kind of like moment in our lives. You know, when you're so fully absorbed by a task, uh, when your concentration is so focused that you don't give space to worry or, or anything like that, you're not anxious about anything. You're intensely aware of what's going on in the moment, but you're not self-conscious. Like time gets altered. It often seems like it's just passing in slow motion. Uh, like you feel fully alive. You're intensely active, but you have this sense that there's some force, some strength at work that's greater than you. That's what this researcher calls flow. And he's not a Christian, but I think it's a description of what we were intended to experience when God said initially that we're to exercise dominion as creatures made in his image. Theologically, it's about dominion. It's a little like Psalm 19.5, the way that creation is set up to work, where the psalmist says that the sun is like a champion who rejoices to run the course. That's flow. Csikszentmihalyi writes this, Contrary to what we usually believe, the best moments of our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. Now, I wanna explain what people have to experience in order to achieve this state called flow. He said, people experience this sense of flow when two things happen. When there's a right relationship between problems on the one hand, and then capacity, uh, skills, talents, and spiritual gifting on the other hand. When these are in right proportion, that's when people experience the sense of flow. Now, when these are out of whack, that's when we get in trouble. If someone is experiencing 
problems that are too big for their capacity, they get overwhelmed. And then they tend to experience anxiety. They get fearful. That's if they're experiencing problems that are uh, too big for them given their capacity. On the other hand, if the problem factor is too low and their capacity is too great, they'll experience boredom. There's just a sense of stagnation, a lack of growth and so on. So if the problem is too big, if the challenge factor is too high, there's anxiety. If the problem factor is too low, there's boredom. Now, when there's a right relationship where problems have been artfully distributed to match up with someone's spiritual giftedness and capacity, then people experience the flow of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now, I want to ask you to do something. I want you to consider where you work, either in the marketplace or parenting or volunteering at Blue Oaks, leading a small group. Now, I'd like to ask you to do a little assessment. Would you say right now you're in a situation where you're over-challenged? Or would you say things are a little stagnant, it's a little easy? I also wanna ask you to consider this just in general with your life. Right now, does your life tend to feel somewhat over-challenged? Or predominantly, would you say that you're experiencing a sense of life being a little too easy these days? I wanna encourage you, if you're in a position where you manage people, one of the best exercises you can do is to do this assessment with your employees or your volunteers. Because I'll tell you a little secret, if you have people who work for you or volunteers who serve with you, this experience of flow is what people were made for. I mean, this is what people live for. To have this sense that I'm being stretched and challenged and God is using me and I'm growing and I'm contributing to the work of God in this world, I mean, that's what you and I were made for. But if I'm not experiencing this, I mean, you can't pay me enough money. Like if a volunteer is not experiencing this, you can't have enough volunteer appreciation events or write enough thank you notes to keep them in that kind of position. And, and this is a moving target. Uh, like what will happen in someone's life is sometimes the stress level of their life will go up. Like a young couple might have a child and their, their challenge factor goes up. Or sometimes someone's capacity will increase. You know, for parents, as their kids grow, their capacity keeps increasing. And so the challenge level needs to keep up with that. Now, among other things, Jesus was the master of the art of problem distribution. And if you go through the Gospels, I mean, you'll notice one of the things that he does is he always gives his disciples, the people who he's, who he's building into, he's always giving them problems. Like here are a few loaves and a few fish, go feed 5,000 people. Here's a person with a very tenacious demon, like you cast it out. Now we're gonna go on this boat ride and an enormous storm is gonna come up. You just keep real calm. Like Jesus would constantly give them problems and then he would do things to develop, to enhance, to, to enlarge their capacity. He'd say, all right, now come away with me and I'm gonna teach you about the kingdom. Come away with me for a while and I'll explain to you about the parables. Just stop for a moment along the road and let's, let's examine together how humility works and what makes someone great. 
Now come away with me for a while and I'll teach you how to pray. Constantly with Jesus, there is this rhythm where he would assign wise problems. And when you do this, people's desire to grow goes way up. Like they're ready to be built into. And then he would enlarge their capacity. And this combination would just keep going on and on. And then he would give them bigger problems. And then he would give them greater capacity until one day he would say to them, I'm leaving and I'm gonna turn the world upside down. And here's the Holy Spirit who's gonna be with you. Ultimate challenge, ultimate capacity. This is a fundamental tool for the development of human beings. This is just how edification works. It all happens through a wise distribution of problems. Again, if you want to build into someone, like if you're parents or if you're in a position where you can influence people, I mean, you wanna follow Jesus in this. The art of wise problem distribution and then increasing capacity is fundamental to the development of human beings. And when it doesn't happen, that's when people stagnate. All right, so that's the first tool. We'll talk about the second tool in just a moment. Have you ever been camping and had your tent fall in on you in the middle of the night? I, over my years of life as a music lover and researcher in the music field industry, have spent a lot of times in tents. And not necessarily camping, but it's the same concept. At every music festival I have been to that requires camping, there's always that one person or a group of people who seem to have tent errors. And now it obviously could and most likely is user error, but it could also be a malfunction in the gear. A tent pole is broken and so the tent falls. A stake in the ground isn't fully grounded in and the tent flies off. A hole lets a little water in. A tiny issue, something wrong with the equipment, leads to massive failure and soggy socks. Paul, as we read in Acts 18, was a tent builder. His hands knew the roughness of the rope and the smoothness of the canvas. His mind knew the geometry and the architecture needed to raise a structure up for living. And I have no doubt that he, at some point in his tent building life, experienced a failure. A pole crumbling because of weather and fatigue, a canvas bleached by the hot sun ripping in places, rope snapping, failure was naturally a part of his job. And he understood that while problems could lead to temporary frustration, that ultimately this problem promoted growth. It promoted change. It crafted opportunities for problem lovers to find new and amazing solutions. Problems prompted flow states in which natural ingenuity mixed with practical opportunity, which yielded incredible results. I've been thinking about this as Matt has been teaching about problems. See, when I think about problems, I frame them in the negative. That task I have at work that is too big to conquer, that doesn't have an obvious answer, that could lead to failure. The lack of vision or process, what if this isn't an opportunity for negative, but what if these problems are opportunities to experience God's power more? What if that person that we just can't deal with, the problem in human form, is an opportunity to hear God in a different way? To see God's reflection and image uh, in a way in, in somebody who we may have shut off because that person picks at something in our own hearts. 
What if we relinquish some of the control of things and take Jesus's call to assign wise problems seriously and see what the people or coworkers or, ki- or kids around us come up with? I've been thinking, what does it really look like to reframe problems as tools? Two, like Ephesians 4 talks about, find promptings in work that can mature and grow us into the fullness of God. If you're stuck in that problem as an as a issue and not as a tool, then this week I invite you, in whatever line of work you find yourself in, to identify something that you have labeled as a problem and spend some time trying to reframe it and see how that problem is an invitation to experience God more fully. And after you do that, I invite you to assign someone a wise problem and see how God works through and in them. At the end of the Ephesians passage, Paul writes that for Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let us as a community be a group that define problems not as problems, but as tent poles or ligaments. Let us be a group that finds ways to actively use problems as a tool for edification and growth in love. And if you're like, okay, how do I actually do that? Well, Matt has a few more tools that I think will add to the way that we can do this. So let's rejoin Matt as he covers how words of hope and and words are tools for us as we join together to be master craftsmen in the process of edifying and building others up. All right, the second tool in the people building business is talk about in Ephesians 4.29. This is what Paul says. And again, he's, he's using the same word. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So the second tool that master craftsmen handle very carefully is this, and this is kind of sobering, words. Everything that comes out of your mouth, because every word you speak in every interaction, even if it's in a tiny way, Like you are either building someone up a little bit or you're tearing them down a little bit. In the letter to the Galatian church, Paul uses two classically contrasted words, oikotome, to build up, and katalusa, to tear down. And in every interaction, to some extent or another, we all sense this. Uh, We all feel this. In our words, a little bit, we're building life into someone or we're tearing them down. Now, I want you to consider if any unwholesome talk has ever come out of your mouth. (laughs) And I'm gonna suggest a few categories to jog your memory. Have you ever used emotionally or spiritually loaded language to try to make someone else feel guilty or to put them on the defensive or off balance so that you're more likely to get them to give in and do what you want them to do? Or have you ever told stories or described events so that you get more credit than you really deserve, while at the same time you look like you're trying to give credit to other people, so you also also get credit for being smart and humble? Or have you ever used words to power up on a child or a subordinate at work just to remind them who's in control because you can get away with it because you're the higher up and it'll make you feel strong? Or have you ever given advice to show how smart you are when someone else just wanted you to listen? 
Or have you ever infected another group or person with cynicism or destructive kinds of complaining because it just feeds your sense of moral superiority and righteousness? Or have you ever blamed someone unfairly and inappropriately? Like, would you have to confess that unwholesome talk which didn't build others up has come out of your mouth? All right, here's the deal. I'm a pastor and my main job is to study and teach about spiritual growth. Do you know how long it took me to put that list together? About 30 seconds. Because my wife has done every one of those things. <laughs> no, I've done every one of those things. Now, if you want a great spiritual discipline for people building this week, practice what might be called an edification test. Just do this for a week. This week, as you think about it, as you allow God to call it to your mind, anytime you're about to say something, just ask yourself, will what I'm about to say edify the person I'm talking to? Will it make them stronger and truer and better and nobler and braver? Uh, will it edify them? And if it won't, don't say it. You know, it might be the quietest week you've had in a really long time. Now, I wanna say one other thing about this. Uh, this doesn't mean you only speak in a string of like chirpy compliments and positive acclamations. It doesn't mean you only say things to other people that would be pleasant, that they want to hear. I say this because a lot of times churches suffer from what's sometimes called terminal niceness. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.15 that if we're going to grow up, if that's really what we're committed to, one thing must happen. We've got to speak the truth. We've got to speak it in love, he says, but we've got to speak the truth or people will not grow up. Uh, there's a classic scene, if you've seen the movie, in A Few Good Men. Uh, there's a classic scene toward the end of it where uh, Tom Cruise is talking to Jack Nicholson on the witness stand and Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. Like, just tell me the truth. And Jack Nicholson says, the truth, you can't handle the truth. Well, Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so you have to decide, do you believe Jack or do you believe Jesus? And a lot of people in a lot of churches act like they believe Jack Nicholson more than they believe Jesus of Nazareth. They act as though people cannot handle the truth. And sometimes we'll rationalize or justify not speaking the truth by pretending that it's because uh, we're caring or compassionate. But as a general rule, it's just out of fear. And it's really out of a lack of love. Because if you love someone more than anything else, you'll want them to grow. You'll want them to be edified. And edification happens when people have the guts to speak the truth in love. And you can do that. All right, so problems, like wise problem distribution, that's one of your tools. And words, everything that comes out of your mouth, it's another one of your tools. All right, one more. Another essential tool in the people building business is what Gordon McDonald calls the spirit of vital optimism. And it's what writers of scripture call hope, just hope. I mean, there's something about hope. There's something about a human being who lives in hope that builds people up. Paul is writing to a community of people he loves in Rome. Uh, he's in prison there and facing persecution and, and tempted to get discouraged. 
And he writes, he writes these unbelievable words. I mean, when you think about edifying someone, listen to this. This is Romans 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Hope never disappoints us. Not because the circumstances always turn out the way that we want them to. Hope never disappoints us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that means that nothing can ever happen to it. I mean, we can never lose it. It can never be taken away. Paul says all kinds of amazing things here. Even suffering can edify people can make them grow, can build them up, even suffering can, as long as they don't lose hope. And I'm sure you know about this. Like in every kind of human community, in families, in churches, in workplaces, in classes, in small groups, I mean, people feed off of the, the vitality and the hope and the authentic aliveness of a leader or of a person of influence, of someone who is the core of that community. When someone at the core of a community has a spirit of vital optimism, I mean, it's like a rock in a shaky time. When other people around say, you know, well, I guess we'll go forward. Well, I guess it'll be okay. And when the person at the core doesn't have it, I mean, the whole community starts to go sour. Now, people who carry this hope can be recognized because they have a fundamental conviction about life and it just bleeds through what they do. And I wanna to get to this conviction in a moment, but I wanna get there through a simple question. Um, it's a real simple question. What's the greatest moment of your life? Think about that. What's the greatest moment of your life? And don't get real deep with it. Don't get too spiritual with it. I mean, it might be one of the greatest moments of your life, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Like what's the greatest moment of your life? I don't know what your life has been like, but I know enough to know that there have been some extraordinary moments in your life. Some of them you don't even remember. There was the moment when you were born and the clock of your life started ticking. I mean, you sucked in your first lungful of breath and the whole adventure of your life started. I mean, and that's like a miracle. Like maybe you were, you were in a room when something like that happened. It's like a miracle. There was the moment when you took your first step and from that moment on, you were a walker and your world was never the same and your mother's world was never the same from that moment on. There was a moment when you spoke your first word and from that moment on, you were a talker and maybe you started and you've not come up for air ever since. There was the moment when you learned how to read a book and the whole world of ideas opened up to you. There was the moment when you got your first job there was the moment when you went on your first date. There was the moment maybe when you fell in love. There was the moment maybe when you had your first child. There was the moment when God touched you in a profound way. There was the moment maybe when you gave your life to him. I wanna tell you what I think, and I believe this to the core of my being. I believe the greatest moment of your life is this moment right here, right now. Because this moment is where God is. Because you miss this moment and you miss your life. Because you miss this moment and you miss the God who is always saying, now, now, 
Now is the time of salvation. Now is the acceptable time of the Lord. This moment. The God who made it possible for the psalmist to say, this is the day, this is the moment that God has made. I will rejoice and be glad. In this day, in this moment, uh, not the one that's gone, not the one that's coming. And if there's any human being anywhere that you want to edify, you've got to breathe this conviction into them. Don't be worried about some moment in the future. People lose their whole life being scared about that. Don't be nostalgic about some moment that's gone in the past. People waste years doing that. Don't spend your moment wishing that you could occupy someone else's moment because it doesn't belong to you and it never will. I believe you ought to expect this moment to be the greatest moment of your life. Not because it's easy. Not because it's pain-free. Not because it's like a Kodak moment. Not because you're so strong and so clever. But because somewhere, about 10,000 miles away from here, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, there is an empty tomb. And if Jesus is not laying in that tomb, if that body is not laying in that tomb right now, then where is he? He's right here, right now, because this moment is where Jesus is. And we who are so preoccupied with time and, and divided up into seconds and hours and years and decades and all kinds of little units that we can measure, I mean, we're so mind boggled by these two infinite concepts of eternity and now. And right now is a little slice of eternity when it's fueled with God. Because Jesus isn't in the tomb 10,000 miles away. He's right here, right now, whatever else is going on in your life. And if this is true, and I believe that it is, if Jesus really is right here, right now, then what human being cannot be changed? If Jesus really is right here, right now, then what sin is so powerful, it can't be overcome by the Holy Spirit? What gift is so dormant that it cannot be fanned in the flames in the church of God? Because see, it turns out that the edification business, the people building business, is really the resurrection business. And as it happened, uh, that's a specialty of Jesus's. And if you really believe that I can be changed, and if you really believe that I have something to contribute to this sorry, fallen, dark world, and if you really believe that even I, as messed up as I know myself to be, am not beyond the redemptive, anointing, edifying, resurrecting power of God, and if you believe it, and if you start to expect it, and you start praying for it, and you start calling for it, maybe then I'll start to believe it. And if I start to believe it, then maybe someone else will start to believe that they could be experiencing that true. It could, be, it could be true for them too. And then maybe a whole community might start to believe that this moment is really their moment of destiny with the resurrected Jesus. And pretty soon the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament might start growing and building itself up in love and attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And when that happens, from the gates of hell are in serious trouble because then the church will be fully edified and then the church will be working right. I mean, and there is nothing like the church when the church is working right. All right, let me pray for you. God, I pray for those who are listening that they would seriously consider going into the people building business. 
in their workplace, in their home, parenting, in their school, uh, in the volunteering that they do, I pray that they would consider those people who are around them and how they might build into them and edify them, to build them up, to make them strong. God, would you challenge us as we go from here? May the words that I've spoken just kind of fade away, but your words, God, would they continue to challenge us as we go throughout our week? And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, and we hope to see you on Sunday soon.